Nature Bets Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This January 7th, 2020 edition, episode 134 of Nature Bets Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, from Maitland, Florida, in the United States, and from Mexico. It's another three-country episode of NBL. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes a conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen has joined us on the show before on the 1st of September, 2015. Thank you, Kevin. As you indicated, Stephen joined the show for a conversation more than four years ago, shortly after I saw him deliver a presentation about his work. Stephen Jenkinson is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He has a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and also a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto. He's a former program director and medical school assistant professor. He is a subject of National Film Board of Canada documentary film, Griefwalker. He teaches internationally. With Natalie Joy, Jenkinson founded the Orphan Wisdom School in 2010, which convenes in Tremor, Canada and in various places in Northern Europe. He is the author of How It All Could Be, which has now been translated into four languages, Money and the Soul's Desires, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and most recently, Come of Age, The Case of Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. With Gregory Hoskins, Hoskins and band, Stephen has offered Nights of Grief and Mystery to sold-out houses on three continents, most recently during the 26th City Nights of Grief and Mystery North American Tour 2018. Stephen Jenkinson, welcome back to Nature Bats Last on Progressive Radio Network. Gentlemen, thank you for the invitation. Here we sit, three continents apart. Let's see what we can do. Excellent. We will be taking your toll-free calls today. After we chat for a bit with our guests, please call us on our toll-free number in the United States at 888-874-4888. Stephen, could you give us an overview of your recent Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour that you did with Gregory Hoskins in your band? Well, it I mean, who goes looking to join a rock and roll band 
or create one at the age of 65. Uh, maybe more people than I know, but certainly not me. No, what amazingly what happened was that um, <clears throat> someone who was Gregory, who, was, who I didn't know, was drawn to the, to the work, to the books, and got in touch with me. And somehow, as an afterthought, floated the possibility of us doing something together. But I have the double misfortune of being a congenitally Leo, so I tend to try to be in charge of the things I'm responsible for. And uh, I probably don't share that easily in the sandbox, at least not a sandbox where my own sand is in it. And uh, against all those very unpromising beginnings, <clears throat> we did a little gig in a local uh, uh, library north of Toronto uh, about four years ago. And we looked at each other about halfway through and the look said the same thing coming and going. It said, my God, there's something here. And... The next gig we did, with no rehearsal at all, was in New York City to a sold-out house. And basically, we've been touring on and off since then. And now we, we, we just got off the road with a nine-piece uh, ensemble. Uh, the last gig was in the end of November. And uh, I suppose I'm recovering from it to a certain extent. But it is, alongside my school, probably the most raucous and the most joyous and the most um, danger-infused thing that I think I've ever done. And I'm extremely lucky to have been surrounded by people who were musicians first, came to what I'm doing much later, and decided that their musicianship um, deserved uh, something that I was able to do. So it's a kind of, the best way I'd describe it to you as an event is it's something older than theater. And here's what I mean by that. Um, <clears throat> The Greeks gave us our contemporary understanding of theater. And in so doing, they gave us two innovations that they came up with. One was the script, and the other was the audience. And I'm going to suggest to you that what we came up with in Knights of Grief and Mystery Tour is something older than that. Because I think what the Greeks did is they took ritual or ceremony, and they kind of standardized it by the invocation of an audience uh, which removed most people from participation uh, in the old ceremonies or rituals and turned them into people who watched them instead. And the other thing they did was sort of precluded the presence of the gods by the advent of a script. In other words, they predetermined what was going to happen, how it was going to go, what the, what the, uh, the plot was and so on. And what we've done is taken the allegation of a set list and exposed it to the strange radiation of an audience's uh, expectations when they have no idea what we're doing and uh, across, as you said, three continents. And to my great uh, mystification, it has worked out so beautifully well that it's likely I'm going to spend about seven months of this year, 2020, touring in North America, Europe, and uh, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, I suppose I can't argue with the remarkable willingness of people to come and have their expectations stymied and at the end of the day, give us, uh, in many cases, a standing ovation regardless. That's kind of a general uh, take on how it, how it happened and what it is. 
that's that's wonderful. Uh, I just want to give people a, a bit of a background as to why I asked you to come on the show today. Is that I met you briefly last year when you toured New Zealand on a speaking tour when you were uh, after the release of Come of Age, your latest book, Come of Age, the age, right. the case for elderhood in a time of trouble. And I just want to make one point before I hand over to Guy about the about the book and about the presentation that you gave is that we all laughed all the way through that presentation. Do you remember that? People take people sort of think that it's all going to be doom and gloom and, and, and negativity. But I think your approach and Guy's approach and my approach is that we always have to look for the diamond of joy in amongst all of these um, negative aspects of what's going down around us. Well, I... Sure. Um, you know, a comedy is not the opposite of tragedy. It's the partner of tragedy. We are clearly in a tragic age. And, and all the children born to my generation and yours and the people in their 30s are being born into a time so extraordinarily troubled and troubling that it, it may have no parallel in at least recent human history. And for all of that, our obligation, it seems to me, is to be sure that we embody the distinct possibility that in the face of insurmountable um, macro dilemmas, our individual behavior and how we comport ourselves and what we hold dear and how we do so aloud constitutes our real bona fide acts of citizenship and for generations to come, I suppose that's what they'll be looking for amongst uh, two or three other things. What did people do back in the day when the shit hit the fan or was, was promising to do so? Did everyone go crazy? Did everyone go underground? Did everyone go dark? And the, you know, there's no obligation uh, in the face of, uh, of serious tragedy to be unhinged, undone, and to spread that around. There's a, there's a writer named Timothy Morton who, uh, who coined this phrase. I like it a lot. He said, there's a way of saying we're all screwed that guarantees that we're all screwed. That's a great line. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, you have quite a resume. Your diverse background has led to a, I would say, unique perspective on life and death. Will you identify for us what you believe to be the most important experiences that led you down this path, this very unique and interesting path? I think the cardinal feature of the thing is that I wasn't in charge and that even though I made decisions along the way, they were kind of after the fact decisions. It's like being caught by the woman that you were chasing. That's kind of what my life seems to have been. It's, it seized me and then allowed me to imagine that I had done the seizing. And uh, I suppose, you know, your life only looks like it does with really generous hindsight. Um, like I mentioned, I'm 65 now and I, <clears throat> I, I found, I was just writing this morning, I'm in the midst of writing a new book now about matrimony. And I was writing about my understanding of the difference between faith and love, uh, which, which is fitting in a book about matrimony. And it struck me that faith is what you have when you don't have love. 
The reason being that faith is, is much like hope. Its function is a future tense intolerance about the current regime, uh, the current order, the current circumstances you find yourself in, and simply evokes uh, the distinct possibility that it will be different someday, and that's where you actually functionally live in the someday. And I suppose, especially when I worked in the death trade, my great good fortune was to have been robbed of the possibility of a virtual existence. Because I had to stand and deliver every day in the presence of people who had no future, you see. And I had to be able to occupy the no future place along with them. Because if I didn't do that, then all I was was the embodiment of everything they'd never be and do and have again. Which it seems to me to be criminal beyond belief. And so I did everything I could to learn the goneness of the future in working with them. And it's become my understanding of life itself is that there is no future. And more importantly, that the ability to, to engage deeply and occupy deeply your present moment and to love it accordingly is a direct consequence of the extinguishing of all such, all the ideas of potential and possibility. And, and you hand yourself to your days instead of what they could become. That's, in a nutshell, that's my great good fortune is to have, have lost my possibility uh, of having a potential life and traded it in for the life I actually get to inhabit for who knows how many more years. I, now, that's I an interesting... To... No, you go ahead, Guy. That's an interesting paradox you present. You started by saying you had no choice. That the, the, if I can paraphrase, the universe chose for you. And then you conclude that you have no future as an individual, presumably. And that seems like a choice you made. So can you, can you unwrap that for us a little bit, that notion that maybe we have no free will, or at least it's very limited, so we don't get to make the choices. We just are given this life, and we get to pursue it. And then the paradox of living in the moment and scheduling a tour for most of 2020. <laughs> oh, you slipped that last one into confound me, I know. Yeah. Well, you know the old adage, the best way to make the gods laugh is to tell them your plans. It's, it's not because I don't think, first of all, and on the matter of free will, of course there is such a thing. Of course you can decide till the cows come home. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen or anything close to it. And it simply means that you were deciding to decide uh, while life was proceeding. And the, the part that you left out there, the great qualifier for me, was that when I was working with dying people, you see, those who... Who, who desperately and deeply occupied their dying were by definition people who had no future. And the only moral way to, to take a couple of hours of their life by sitting down with them seemed to me to be to agree with their understanding, with their existential plight, that the future has been denied to them but the future, excuse me, but the present as a result of that is that much more available or at hand. 
the consequence for me came down to this. I suppose I realized somewhat in hindsight that I was only really capable of loving being alive once I had glimpsed the deep, ongoing, relentless reality of not being alive. And it, and it didn't translate into a desperate clinging. I mean, when I get interviewed fairly routinely, I get asked whether or not I've glimpsed my own death. And of course, the answer is yes. And then people say to me, so you must be good with that. And what they mean is the notion that if you've seen your death enough times, it's no big deal, as if those two things naturally follow. And I'm telling you that having been in the trenches, it's virtually the reverse. That my experience was that once I glimpsed my death for real, my longing to be alive, not my desperation to live, but my longing to be alive, actually deepened and appeared to me as a, as a kind of moral exercise and, uh, or a moral obligation, which I came to share with the people that I, who were dying on my watch. So, you know, free will is an interesting idea, not very compelling to me. On the other hand, it's, it's a good idea to remember the word fate. The English word fate comes from the Latin, fatum, and it means that which has been spoken, basically. So rather than uh, our current understanding of fate is that basically we're doomed, that's it, and your, your self-control is irrelevant, fate actually means, well, look, the gods have spoken, okay? There are things in the air and in the works that's incontrovertible. The rest of the story is how shall you respond now that the gods have spoken? And that is not predetermined. What it does instead, it gives you a range of possibilities and references to engage. You see, so, so you could see that, that the universe collapses slightly when the gods speak into what you're going to have to contend with in your generation. And the beauty of the arrangement is that individual human beings have the opportunity to engage the, the, the dictates of the gods, and the gods themselves don't seem to determine how we do that. And that's the, uh, in between those two places is where I've got to live and to work, and that's where the Knights of Grief and Mystery come from. I think in many respects that that um, uh, shows up what uh, why a guy and I do what we d do. We want to be able to look the youth in the eye and say we tried and we, we were honest about what we thought. Right or wrong, we're honest about what we thought. I want to get back to um, love again. One of the things I heard you say w once was that love is, love is a way of grieving. And it reminded me of a Che Guevara quote on, uh, on love and revolution. He said, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality, end quote. Brilliant. Brilliant, and I'd agree. As long as we understand... Or we we become, let's say, eloquent on the on what we mean by this word love, that it's not a quality of, let's say, your feeling for another person. It's the quality of your 
willingness to engage a deeply unpromising circumstance, that your willingness to set aside the the upside or the likely um, positive outcome that you're working on behalf of, and instead engage the work itself as the place where your love uh, has to most emphatically appear. Uh, years ago, I came up with the phrase that work is the thing that you're least inclined to do. And the notion that you have to work at loving is is a very handy one to help us, um, I think, guide our understanding away from the notion of feelings or an interior reality and come to an understanding of love as a condition or terms of engagement and and how you are with each other or with the people close by is how you practice how you are with the world, it seems to me. You know, Dostoevsky and, and the brothers Karmatsov made this grim observation. He said, humanity is easy to love. Humans, on the other hand, are more challenging or something along those lines. It's, I mean, we all know how true that is. Of course, we all see ourselves as the one who's trying to love the unlovable and, and not having great success at it, rather than seeing ourselves as one of those unlovable things in the world. Well, there's that. But uh, I, this book about matrimony is turning into a, an unexpected contemplation of the obligations of citizenship in a nominal democracy among other things. And it's, it strikes me, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you and see what you think about this, that the act of radical love that Guevara and others have mentioned, that's a beautiful quote, by the way, seems to me to be um, uh, a condition of citizenship. We, we must, to the extent that our circumstances allow, and a bit more than that, uh, endanger our standing in a troubled society by, you know, radical calculations of love that, that embrace the circumstances as they are because love at, at its core is a hope-free proposition, it seems to me. Your response reminds me of Aristotle and his definition of friendship, as I understand it, which is a relationship between people who are working together toward the common good, not drinking buddies. He never said a word about drinking buddies, as nearly as I can tell. It's a relationship between people who are actually working toward something, towards a common good. Right. Now, you said you're an outlier who gets no gigs in your home profession. I, I think I saw you recently in an interview say something just about like that. Correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty if, cool. if that's what you said, I think I can relate. So we respond to two points, outlier and no gigs. How are you an outlier and what do you mean by not getting work in your chosen profession? Well, I'll start with the second one first. Um, I realized early on in the death trade that I wasn't a customer satisfaction practitioner. I didn't, I didn't set out not to be one, but there was something in the nature of the arrangement where if you set yourself up as one who's satisfying a consumer of your work, then it turns out that what's dictating the nature and the focus of your work 
is the expectations uh, of the one who's consuming it. The one who's not doing the work turns out to be the one who's dictating the terms of the work. And if I can apply it to the death trade scenario, here I am trying to help dying people die while the dying people themselves don't understand themselves to be dying people. So their expectation was that I would um, absolve them of the obligation to conduct themselves as if they were a dying person. And I'll, I'll give you a, a at-hand uh, memory of this. A woman came up to me after one of the talks and she said, so I have a problem and, and here's what it is. How can I respect my father who is dying, refusing to talk with me about it at all, and at the same time practice the kind of die-wise manifesto that you've written about? And my answer to her was, you can't. And she looked at me like, no, no, everything's possible. And I said, no, everything's not possible. If your father refuses to talk to you about it and engages that as if it's his, his right to shut down in his last act of fathering you, this precludes the possibility of you engaging with him overtly or even covertly as the daughter of a dying man. And you have to aid and abet his refusal and call that an act of being a daughter. So this is a, a second iteration of what I said about customer satisfaction. And, and this is fundamentally what, what makes me, I think, an outlier is that through no intention of my own, it's turned out that I have no ability to be overly governed by the, the expectations of other people. And honestly, I wish I did, because my, my daily interactions would probably be, <laughs> uh, I don't know, they'd be easier on me. I suppose they'd be certainly easier on people who associate themselves with me and what I do. But it seems to be in the cards that my, my obligation, my first marriage, if you will, is to the understandings that claimed me some time ago. And if I am faithful to those, I seem to be able to be faithful in my lived life in this world. But if I were to, to subvert the first for the sake of the second, I'd have neither. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And yet... It seems like we have at least an entire generation, the generation of my parents in their 80s, that subscribes to the infinite growth paradigm to a far greater extent than later generations. So the, the notion that I'm not going to die, that idea seems to apply to an entire generation, the generation before mine. Am I misinterpreting that? Do you get the same idea? If so, how do we deal with that? I mean, that, that's basically, it sounds like what, what the woman you were talking about was dealing with. Indeed, yeah. And, I, you know, at the risk of, of fudging the generational lines a little bit, I mean, the, the thing I could add to what you said, which certainly I've observed over and over again, is this. As I'm sure you know better than I, um, the, there are technologies afoot uh, at least at the R&D level right now, that are, are uh, bound and determined to find the eternity pill. That is, to find a serum whereby uh, once taken the serum, uh, you won't have to die. I mean, they're actively working on this stuff. 
The point is, where's the money coming from, which has to be in the extraordinary millions of dollars to develop such a thing? What, what generation is it coming from? And it's not coming from the money generation in their 60s or 70s or even 50s. It's coming from people in their 30s and 40s. So interestingly enough, the younger people at the present moment seem more committed to or addicted to self-determination than their parents' generation was, which is hard to imagine because the parents' generation was, you know, savagely engaged in all kinds of self-promotion um, and self-development and the rest. And the consequence for their now grown children has been uh, an ever more um, relentless pursuit of limitless possibility. And growth is one of the aspect of that, but uh, getting to Mars when everything goes sideways and the eternity pill are two other ones. So how to make sense of it? Well, I think, I think when, you, when you have a reactivity to your parental generation, be not surprised that the reaction that you generate turns out to be the un unclaimed bastard child of the thing you think you're trying to undo or distance yourself from. And interestingly, pondering that infinite growth paradigm, Homer in the Iliad indicated that the gods envy us humans because we die. And as a result of that, because we always have death on our left shoulder, we smell the flowers and it's meaningful. Because we die, we get to appreciate the here and the now. And the gods, according to Homer, don't. Because what's another day? What's another year? What's another thousand years? In light of the roses not changing their, their smell much. Can you comment? Yes, uh, I would say rather than rendering that as an inevitability, it's better to suggest that it's a possibility. Because I can tell you in my time in the death trade, it was not a given that the understanding of or the proximity to one's death instantly and inevitably resulted in people smelling the flowers. More often than not, it was quite the reverse. More often than not, people spent their dying time trying not to die. So, so one of the things the gods may not envy in us is the omnipresence of death and our, and our sort of parallel inability to conduct our lives as if this were so. Now, when you are when you're working twenty four seven, do you experience despair? And if so, how do you deal with it? Do you have time for that? <laughs> you know, if, if busyness was the solution to despair, there'd be much less of it than there is. It seems. So no, I'm not too busy for it. Certainly not. And um, yeah, I mean, there's times. When I look up from the enterprise, particularly, you know, when there's unkindness afoot and, and condemnation of all kinds, as if I'm running for office, you know, and if, as if I personally am on, on offer uh, because I've written a few things or because I agree to do things like this, that, uh, that my, my person is the real subject of scrutiny and not the things we're trying to wonder aloud about together. Yeah, when those things happen, it does make me question the why of it. The other thing 
that's that's conspiring to do so is I'm beginning to notice certain, you know, physical signs that suggest to me I might not last forever. And, <laughs> you know, and my energy and so on, and even my capacity to give a shit might be on the slow ebb or on the slow train heading out of town. And that doesn't excite me, to be honest. It doesn't, uh, I'm not thrilled at the prospect of the third act, uh, wherein everyone knows more or less how it goes. Yeah, that's all true. And then alongside that, I've been granted, uh, you know, many hundreds of my fellow humans' deaths to, to educate me in my times of disconsolateness. And those two things together are the sum of my humanity, it would appear to me now. That and the fact that I get up to stand up in front of a band <laughs> and to be troubled aloud and not to be paralyzed by it to a rather killer groove behind me. I mean, that's a pretty good life, man. Your books wouldn't be doing so well if people weren't enamored of the the words that you've got to say and the and the tour wouldn't, with the band wouldn't have gone so well if people didn't enjoy being in the audience. Hey, I would like to get back to uh, Come of Age, the, the, your latest book, and okay. one of the aspects in it, um, Elders in Training. And before you, before you give us an overview of Elders in Training, I want to give you a, an anecdote from my youth. I was about 14 years old and the accounting teacher said to me, didn't your, teach, didn't your parents teach you to have respect for your elders? And I replied, no, they didn't. They taught, they taught me to have respect for people who have earned my respect, and you haven't done that yet. Next minute, he picked up the duster from the, the blackboard and biffed it straight at me in the front of the class. It, the, the duster flew through the room, hit my desk, and bounced up and landed in front of me, and I grabbed it and threw it straight back at him. It hit the blackboard right behind him and put a crack in the blackboard. And he had to look at that crack for the rest of the year that him and I were in the class together. So that's a little bit of a, a, an anecdote of my experience with people who thought they were elders and hadn't got to that point yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, not much to say about the anecdote except um, that the, the adjudication of a 14-year-old is probably being, the merit of it is being overstated these days. When you have a 15-year-old standing at the United Nations shaming everyone in sight uh, and being applauded for that and then being marginalized the next day, uh, you know, by the same august body that brought her in, I mean, these things are, they're just tortured uh, circumstances. You know, the, the notion that older people are disqualified from, uh, from high regard and honor uh, because of the state of the world, does not immediately confer upon their juniors that abdicated or abandoned uh, position of honor and respectability. Because after all, surely we could agree that what precedes us influences us in one of two fairly obvious ways. Either we imitate what has preceded us or we do everything we can not to. And in both cases, what preceded us has determined our course of action much more than we're likely to allow. Okay, with that in mind then, 
most people who are making pronouncements about how respectable older people have been are doing so without the benefit of much experience of what real deep respectability looks like. And so their condemnations are coming from a lack of experience, not from a frustrated former experience that is no longer so. This makes this whole circumstance, I think, much more challenging than us and them or good guys or bad guys or the young and the old. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Leonard, Leonard Cohen, an old man, when he quoted this line, he said, well, the dealer wants you thinking it's either black or white. Thank God it's not that simple. And I think uh, apropos of the line that you quoted, uh, attributed to me something in the order of, <coughs> excuse me, elders in training, um, uh, that's a lifetime. And uh, you don't qualify as a 14-year-old, no matter how the teacher is, you know, treated you, to, to adjudicate on the merits of adulthood, never mind elderhood. Now, who is? Who is? I'm not, I don't know that there's anything that automatically qualifies this. Today, I, I think one of the great cultural poverties we have is that the, the merits of the older generation are, are understandably and probably legitimately compromised now. And their obligation, and I'm at the tail end of that generation, their obligation is to stand alongside what they failed to achieve, failed to take seriously, failed to act on behalf of in time. There's no doubt of that. But their willingness to do so is not the only criteria by which younger people might hold them in, in some kind of esteem anyway, you see. So it's, it's a very confounding scenario. The way I could sum it up is to say that we are on the receiving end of as many prejudices from the past as we are wisdoms from the past. But prejudices are much easier to maintain than wisdom is, which, is, which goes a long way towards making the case, I think, that wisdom by definition can't be inherited because it's so site-specific, so time and circumstance-specific. Prejudice, on the other hand, is a one-size-fits-all proposition. Once you are prejudiced against a certain idea or time period or people or race or whatever it is, you don't need any further evidence. That thing is self-sustaining. Wisdom, on the other hand, has to be sustained from one generation to the next by being severely modified according to the demands of the time. That's all to say then that I would hope that younger people as they age, might come to their memories of how deeply discrediting they were of the people who preceded them, um, say, uh, mediated somewhat by an understanding of how seemingly impossible the older people's lives had become within their own lifetime. These are not excuses, of course, but they are the beginnings of a kind of compassionate wisdom that doesn't mistake misanthropy for having a conscience. A frequent expression. Are you still there, Guy? Have you lost your audio? Yes, I heard him drop out too. I don't hear him now. Cool. Okay. Okay. 
Oh, there we are. I'm back. You're back. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. It seems to me that an entire generation, the he's gone again. You're you're, drop, you're dropping out, guy. I'll step in for the moment, and uh, we'll get you back in later. And okay, another another uh, concept that I I derived from come of age was the the issue of village mindedness. Since I've um, realised how dire our our climate um, predicament has become. I've been advocating to all the people that I know that there's no more important time in history to form a tribe. I've moved out into a small island of the co in the Hauraki Gulf in New Zealand. There's only 21 residents on this island. And within that 21, I have a small group of people. We help each other every day. We have a lot of potluck dinners. We share vegetables and produce amongst us. And it's, for me, it really gives me an anchor when I'm in this perfect storm of, of the impending collapse that's going down. So I think your concept of village mindedness is really, really important. Yeah, I, I guess I would agree with you. And uh, <clears throat> I applaud the, the circumstance you found yourself in. And if I could, and you'd, you wouldn't be surprised if I messed with it a little bit with a few suggestions. Uh, the first one would no. be this, okay? The first one would be this, that a village, yeah, I, 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 I use the phrase village-minded to try to make a distinction that would serve either the reluctance or the inability of people to change their lives structurally, you see? Uh, for all kinds of reasons. And so rather than imagining a, a lived life where people are living in close proximity and can do the kind of uh, food sharing and so on that you described, I tried to imagine a circumstance where a certain, let's call it existential or psychic skillfulness that you could call village mindedness could be cultivated in lieu of that lived circumstance. That's the first thing. The second thing is then that village mindedness is basically a condition of your understanding as it's translated into your behavior, not the other way around. Thirdly, a village to my mind is not made up of people who think like me, see like me, feel like me, want to be me, want me to be them, and so on. That's more typical of a cult. A village in any sort of ongoing sense of the term it includes people who don't want to be in that village, who don't believe in the way the village is proceeding, who are not any longer compelled uh, by the, uh, the circumstances that crafted the village in the first place, and so on. Because the, I think the village's real skillfulness is the capacity to sustain itself in the presence of what would outdo it, undo it, excuse me, in the presence of what would undo it. You see, minus that ability, what do you have? Is you have a lot of yes men and yes women. And, you know, in those circumstances, which tend to be what they call intentional communities, one of the things you find that is their undoing is conflict. And they, they bring in all kinds of... Uh, life coaches and so on to work them, help them work through, quote, conflict, as if conflict 
is the opposite of village-mindedness. In fact, it's, it's one of the um, currencies of village-mindedness, is your capacity to openly engage in real conflict wherein the, you don't preserve in spirit the old understanding of the village, but you instead craft an understanding of the village that now must occupy the present circumstances. And the present demands have to be answered by how you live together now. So that's all a way of saying that uh, village-mindedness is not the opposite of living in a suburb. It's simply everything the suburb left out or left behind or can't even remember anymore. <laughs> Stephen, uh, this is yes. Pauline Schneider. I, I sometimes co-host the show. And uh, I, I'm sitting here just wrapped, and I, I just wanted to say thank you for being on here. And really, you know, going back to um, our elders earlier, I, I just kept the, the word sensei just feels like it applies to you beautifully. So <laughs> <laughs> I really feel that. Um, and, and that reminded me, you know, um, what Guy was trying to ask, or, or at least mention is, you know, so many millennials now dismiss the entire baby boomer community with this dismissive term, okay, boomer, as if, you know, we all are guilty <laughs> all together <laughs> of yeah. everything that's gone wrong. And I, I, I really appreciate you um, addressing that. Thank you. Well, well, thank you for acknowledging that. And as far as the sensei thing goes, you know, I, I mean, almost anybody could sound good for about 50 minutes and then <laughs> and, and then things take off appreciably thereafter, you know, so. <laughs> well, we're fast running out of time here then, aren't we? Yes, I'm, I'm reaching, the, you know, capacity at the moment. So another two questions, I can probably sound pretty capable and then that'll be it. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got one for you. Okay. Um, do you give advice? I know that at least implicitly you give advice in your books, but so what, what kind of advice are you trying to give to people, to individuals who are struggling through the kinds of difficulties that we all struggle through? Okay, the answer to the first part is hell no. I do not give advice. <laughs> what if I'm begging? <laughs> Especially if you're begging. <laughs> No, and yeah, and here's why. Because you know, it 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 is incumbent upon me. Look, I'm not I'm not pretending that they're not people who, because of the work and you know the publicity and so on, aren't seeking the kind of thing that you're referring to. Of course they are. And I don't think poorly of people who are doing so. And my refusal to respond in kind is not some kind of quiet or closet condemnation of them, or anything of the kind. What it is, is something like this. If I were willing to inhabit their lives and live out the consequences of what I would advise them to do, then I would advise them. Mm -hmm. But you see, I have a responsibility to know that the consequences of my suggestions will elude me for the most part. And that strikes me as deeply... Um, without a sense of responsibility to a fellow human being. Not to mention the fact that it's not very respectful to commandeer uh, a person's life long enough to tell them what to do 
and then hurt, hand the driving wheel over to them and the world that drove them to seek the advice remains completely unchanged, you see? And this is why I don't believe in the, in the, in the format of therapy. It's essentially the same reason. The circumstances that drove people to your door remain unaddressed by what you do when you close that door. I think advice is, you know, similar. So, and then the second half of your question, I, I've forgotten what it is now because I talked too long. <laughs> <laughs> if you give advice, which you don't, I was asking what kind of advice you, you would give. What do you suggest we do from the level of our own families to our own towns? How do we act as individuals and to the extent we have influence as a society? Well, you know, the first and honest answer is I don't know, you know, but it doesn't prevent me from answering the question for myself. So I'm not recommending that anybody else get a rock band and go out on the road and lament out loud on three continents. I, I don't recommend it to anybody. I don't recommend anybody to write books. And But if you're going to do it, then I would have something to suggest to you. But my suggestion is nothing more than my example. See, so long ago, I realized when I was in, you know, I, I, I created a school and I was lucky enough that people came and then they began to refer to me as the teacher or a teacher or God help us, their teacher. And when I began to hear their language and I, I observed my own reaction to it and I, I wasn't comfortable with it. And, but more importantly, I didn't believe in it. I didn't think it was accurate. So I was trying to find a way of re-understanding what I was doing. And I ended up saying something like this. Look, I'm not a teacher because a teacher gestures otherwise. I have to inhabit the things I'm recommending. So I'm probably a practitioner instead. And uh, my practice is all I've got to recommend or suggest or or offer. That's all it is. And maybe there's something in there that could be useful, uh, maybe temporarily. And if that's true, and if I get to hear about it, you know, I'm in the bonus round of my life. So uh, beyond that, I make no claims. And whatever the meaning is that's attached to the things I've been trying to do is not really for me to determine. My job is to get it on the page or to get it in this little life of mine, and perhaps somebody else's job could include some ascertaining of its relative merits in the time to come. Thank you for that. We're nearly out of time here. Do you have a few words you can send us away with? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> not oh. advice, not advice. <laughs> no, no, well, Just I mean, the most important words in your life summarized in, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute. <laughs> See, here's the thing. If summary statements were all they're cracked up to be, then we wouldn't need the hour. <laughs> summary statements are like, um, are, the, are the crumbs on the table after you've had a meal. They're, they're nothing to brag about. So, so and beyond that, it's very seductive to, to imagine that you could craft some kind of understanding that would carry everything in one thing. Better to say, that it's not true that we're all doing our best. It's not, I wish it were true, but it's not true. So rather than imagining that you're doing your best because you're exhausted, you could imagine it this way. Your exhaustion is overrated and you're believing in it to the extent that, that undermines your capacity to proceed. So 
So imagine then, rather than being the needy person that the helping professions have in, induced you to, to be, you can imagine yourself as a needed person. It doesn't cancel out the neediness. It simply, it simply expands your consequence beyond what you seek for your own sustenance. And imagine yourself to be engaged actively in the possibility of becoming some kind of sustenance for someone who doesn't yet know that you even live. Thank you. That's a, wonder, that's a wonderful summary, Stephen. Thank you very much. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but I've been in uh, contact with your tour manager for the upcoming tour when you come to Australia and New Zealand. And um, I'm hoping to host you. I do some of the hosting in Auckland when you arrive. If I, I've toured New Zealand three times with Guy, and I know how grueling those tours are. So if at all possible, I'd like you to take a day or two off and come out to my little island. Um, we could shoot the breeze in my front lounge, and hopefully we'll see some orca go by as we're sitting there chatting, talking about it. And I'll take you and show you my antidote to despair, which is me uh, volunteering at a, at a na uh, native plant nursery on a rewilding project. Irrespective of how dire I believe our future is, I think it's a, a right action is still the way to go. So I'm planting trees, and my aspiration is to be the last guy to put a, put a, uh, a seed in the ground. We're going to have to wrap it at that. Um, Stephen, I'd like to thank our contributors and listeners today, as well as Afrazen for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next episode airs live on February the 4th, 2020, where we'll be interviewing again uh, Professor, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Paul Ehrlich. If you missed the broadcast of this broadcast, you can find it in the archives at prn.fm, the pod B minute Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Looking forward to seeing you in New Zealand. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, folks. Thank you, too. Gonna get you